Let's open God's Word now. Uh, Reading from Exodus chapter 7, verses 14, to 8, verses 15, and then we'll skip a chunk and we'll skip over to chapter 10 and read the first 29 verses of that chapter. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's these Bibles on the back table, um, so go grab one if you want, and it's page 62 on that Bible. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honour of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards and in the fields. They were piled into heaps and the land reeked of them. 
But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Skip over now to chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your parents nor your ancestors have never seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realise yet that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said. But tell me who will be going. Moses answered, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt, so that locusts swarm over the lands and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord, even with your women and children even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and your herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God, and until we get there we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. 
But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you work in the lives of your people, that you did that thousands of years ago through Moses uh, and speaking to Pharaoh. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would speak to us now and work in our lives, uh, that your spirit might be at work mightily among us, that you would call us to faith, that you would soften our hearts, that we might heed your word, uh, believe it, and follow Jesus Christ. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, in the 1870s, there was a series of locust plagues that decimated a part of America known as the Great Plains. Uh, there was an estimated 12, million, uh, 12 trillion sorry, locusts which descended on a slab of uh, land in America and destroyed everything in their path, including... Uh, sawdust, leather, and even the clothes that people were wearing. One article describes it like this. Beginning in late June 1874, wide blue skies all over the American prairie suddenly went dark. Some likened it to a snowstorm, others to the coming of night. The pinky finger-sized insects ate a panoply of crops, including wheat, corn, melons, tobacco, barley, strawberries, potatoes, beans, and fruit trees. The weight of all the bugs in the swarm was estimated to be in excess of 27 million tons. One account tells of 15 acres of corn eaten in just three hours. Uh, But remarkably, after a few years of devastating plagues, the locusts completely died out uh, and has never been seen or discovered since. Uh, Why did those series of devastating plagues take place in America? Uh, We don't know, do we? Uh, They they just happened. What we don't have with those locust plagues in America in the 1870s is an explanation of what God was doing through those. Uh, When natural disasters happen in our world, we're often at a loss to understand what God's purpose in those things is. There's no direct word of explanation from God telling us what he's doing. But that's not true of these chapters in Exodus. Here in these chapters of Exodus, God brings not just one plague, not just locusts, but ten plagues against uh, the people of Egypt. And they come with an explanation. They come with God saying to the people, this is what I'm doing. And while God's reasons in those days, in the days of Exodus, don't necessarily help us to understand the catastrophes that are happening in the world around us today they do help us to come to terms with and to understand God's great plan for the world to save a people for himself and also to deal with people who are dead set and remain dead set on uh, rejecting him. So the events of this chapter, of these chapters, are on a national scale. There's rivers turned to blood, plagues of frogs, gnats, flies, the death of livestock, outbreaks of boils, uh, a hailstorm, the plague of locusts, a blanket of darkness covering the land. And yet, despite the kind of national scale of these events, again, just as in some of the previous chapters of Exodus, there's also this intense personal interest. 
Throughout these chapters, what lies at the heart of what God is doing, the thing that is constantly brought to our attention, is how Pharaoh responds to to God's word through Moses. So in chapter 7, verse 14, God says to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, he refuses to let the people go. And so God sends Moses, for that reason, to, to go to Pharaoh and confront him. He goes to Pharaoh and he warns him that the Nile will be turned to blood if Pharaoh doesn't let God's people uh, go. But Pharaoh doesn't listen and so as he read that the Nile is turned to blood. And how does Pharaoh respond? Well, he responds by walking back into his palace and completely ignoring what's happened. And so God sends Moses again, this time with a warning about the frogs, that they'll cover the land. And again, Pharaoh refuses to listen and the frogs, uh, but this time when the frogs come on the land, uh, Pharaoh calls Moses to fix the problem. So he says in, in chapter 7 verse 8, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So Pharaoh asks Moses for help. Moses comes, he prays for Pharaoh, but then when the frogs finally disappear, Pharaoh changes his mind. He doesn't let them go. Then the, then the plague of gnats. Again, Pharaoh won't listen. Uh, and this time, even with the, with the gnats, the magicians of Pharaoh say to Pharaoh, well, actually, this is the hand of God. You should listen. But Pharaoh refuses to listen, even still. God sends flies. The flies invade the palace, the houses of Pharaoh's officials and the whole land. And this time, Pharaoh seems to kind of nudge closer to what God is doing. Uh, to, to come, he comes closer to doing what God wants. He summons Moses and Aaron and tells them to go and make their sacrifices. Except, he says, just don't go and do it in the desert like you've been asking me. You can do it in the land of Egypt. And Moses basically says to Pharaoh, that's not what God's asking. That doesn't cut it. It's not kind of a half... God's not asking you to come halfway. God's saying, this is what you need to do. Then God sends a plague of livestock. All the livestock uh, of the Egyptians die. uh, And we're told in chapter 9, verse 7, yet his heart, Pharaoh's heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. There's a plague of festering boils. And again, Pharaoh won't listen. A plague of hail. Hail rains down, destroys animals and crops. Trees are stripped bare. Finally, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and says to them in chapter 9, verse 27, this time I've sinned. Wow. It's extraordinary admission, isn't it, from the king of Egypt. This time I've sinned, he says to them. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Extraordinary, isn't it? Pharaoh seems almost repentant. And yet, the moment that uh, there's a reprieve, the moment that the hail stops, Pharaoh changes his mind. Verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and the officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Moses comes and threatens Pharaoh next with a plague of locusts. And now even the officials of Egypt are encouraging Pharaoh to listen. 
They're saying in uh, chapter 10, verse 7, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go, let them go, for goodness sake. So that they may worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt is ruined? Again, it seems like Pharaoh might relent. But actually, he's only willing to let the men go and make sacrifices in the desert. He wants the women and children uh, to stay behind. He wants to keep his claws on these people. Uh, But again, Moses says, that's not what God's asking for. And so the locusts come and they destroy whatever hadn't been destroyed already. By the hail, nothing's, nothing's left in the field. There's no crops, there's no fruit on the trees. And again, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron, and again he seems repentant. Verse 16 of chapter 10, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. But once there's a reprieve, you know what's going to happen, don't you? He won't let the people go. He changes his mind. And finally, God sends this blanket of darkness to cover the land. It covers the land for three days. And again, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron in. And again, he's kind of half willing, but not willing. He's willing to let all the people go into the desert, just not their livestock. But again, Moses says, look, that's not what God's asking you to do. And finally, Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, well, get out of my sight and don't come back. I don't ever want to see you again. Pharaoh just can't bring himself to do what God is asking. God's saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, maybe, maybe just a little, maybe just a little more. No, I'm not going to do it. He cannot bring himself to do what God is asking, despite all the words from Moses, despite all the plagues, despite all the reprieves from God, despite even the advice of his own own officials, he just cannot do what God says. And again and again, we're told through these chapters that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He turned himself, he turned his, his himself and his own heart against the word of God. And inevitably, the judgment of God comes on Pharaoh and it comes on his whole nation because of his stubbornness. You see, what these chapters of Exodus uh, highlight is how easy it is, I think, for us to hear the words of God, to see the power of God, to hear the warning of God, to hear the pleas of other people around us that we might turn to God and yet to simply become more and more hardened against God. It's a terrifying picture, I think, these chapters in Exodus. It's terrifying because it's so real. Isn't it? It's so real to human experience. To hear the word of God, to see the power of God, and to respond to that not by turning to God, but by increasingly hardening ourselves more and more against God. God and what he is doing. God comes again and again to Pharaoh with an opportunity to listen, an opportunity to repent. But Pharaoh just will not listen. You might know people like that yourself. Uh, They might be people that you've shared the gospel with, people who've seen the goodness of God in their life and, 
and in the lives of others, people who've been pulled up by God uh, at various times in their lives, people uh, who've experienced God, God intervening in their lives to make them sit up and take notice of, of who God is and what He's doing. People who's, in whose lives God's Word and, and, and the Bible have really spoken with authority and with clarity about what they need to do and how they need to turn to Jesus. Uh, and yet, tragically, despite all those gifts of God's love, those people are more hardened against the gospel today than they ever were. It might be a friend, uh, it might be a colleague, it might be a neighbour, it might be one of your children, it could be a brother or a sister, it could be one of your parents. And every time you speak to them about God, every time they hear about God, you see them becoming more and more resistant. You see them hardening themselves against the gospel. And actually, it might not just be one of your friends that you see that in. Maybe, actually, maybe that's you. Maybe actually you're the one who is hearing God and seeing God at work and, and actually every day you're hardening your own heart against what God is doing. Maybe you come here every week and you sit under the, under the sermons and, and, and you hear God's word and you hear God's call to repentance. You hear God's call to entrust your life to Jesus. You see God working in, in your own life in some ways and in the lives of people around you. You see God calling you to sit up and take notice. But actually every, every day is just another day in which you harden yourself against God. Uh, and you know it. <laughs> you know we're not, we're not stupid, are we? But we know when we're hardening ourselves against God because we keep refusing to do what God is calling us to do. Every day you're more opposed to God. Every day you listen less. Every day it's easier not to listen. Every day it's easier to ignore God. And there might be moments in your life when you say, like Pharaoh did, okay, God, okay, yes, I get it. Yes, I'm totally in the wrong here. You have to forgive me. But then the next moment you just go back to living the way that you were living before and saying to God, get out of my life. I don't want to see you again. If that describes you, then please realize the warning that Exodus, these chapters of Exodus present. Let me plead with you, don't do that. Don't harden, don't do what Pharaoh did. Don't harden your heart against God. Listen to God to the God who loves you and who calls you to himself, who sent his own son to die on the cross for you. How many times uh, do you need uh, to, how many times do you need God to, to work in your life to speak to you before you listen? How many times do you need to stand beside the, the grave of a loved one, of a friend, before you acknowledge that death is real and that, and that eternity is real and that judgment is real? before you acknowledge that the hope of resurrection only belongs to people who really entrust their lives to Christ? How many reprieves does God need to give you? One reprieve, two, three, ten, seventy, before you'll actually listen to God. How much kindness does God need to show you before you listen? 
If you go on hardening your heart, the time will come, the day will come when it's too late to turn back. Not because God is not willing to receive you, but because you've become so hardened against God that you just cannot turn back anymore. If you're hardening your heart against God, then let me plead with you today, turn to God before it's too late. But not only does Pharaoh harden his own heart through these chapters, uh, mysteriously as well, on a number of occasions, we're also told that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. So, for example, chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Uh, or chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. So not only is Pharaoh hardening his own heart, but actually God is hardening Pharaoh's heart as well. How are we to understand that, and what are we to make of that? So one way that people suggest that we can understand that is, uh, is to think that what happens is that God responds to what Pharaoh does. So some people say that the first movement comes from Pharaoh, so Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then God sees that, and God responds by hardening Pharaoh's heart even more. But actually that won't work because that's not the order in which things happen in these chapters. It won't work because before Pharaoh has even had a chance to respond to Moses' words, uh, God has already said that he'll harden Pharaoh's heart. So way back in chapter 4, verse 21, God says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And he repeats those same words again in in. Uh, just before the, what we read in chapter 7, verse 3, before he sends the plagues, God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And even though I, I send all these signs, he was not going to listen. So it's not that Pharaoh hardens his heart and then God sort of responds to that, but actually God intends from the outset to harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh, that's how Paul understands it in Romans 9. Paul is reflecting on what God was doing here in these chapters, and Paul says, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. He's quoting from chapter 7 of Exodus. I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, this is Paul's conclusion, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That is, it's God's prerogative. That's what it means to be God. That is, God had a plan and purpose. God had a plan and purpose in the life of Pharaoh, in the life of Israel, and nothing could stay, stand in the way of that purpose. Uh, our question, I think, is how is that fair? Well, we'll uh, it'll help, I think, in a moment to see that God's purpose and what he was doing was actually for a good purpose. Uh, God was doing something very good in all this. But for now, I think the important thing for us to realize is that, yes, while God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh was still responsible. God's plan and purpose didn't take away the responsibility that Pharaoh had to respond to God's words. It's important for us to see that Exodus chapter 7 uh, to 10 present us with a, with a combined picture. That is... It's not only true that God uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh also hardened his own heart as well. That is, it's not that God is in control and Pharaoh is just a puppet. 
nor is it that Pharaoh is in control and God is just a puppet, subject to whatever Pharaoh wants to do. Rather, the situation is that God is in control, achieving his plan and purpose, absolutely. And Pharaoh is also acting willfully and, in, and intentionally according to what his heart desires, but still in a way that enacts God's plan and purpose. So that harmony uh, between those two things has often been given the labelled compatibilism, which is not the kind of word that you use in polite conversation, I think. But uh, it, 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 it encapsulates a basic truth. Compatibilism seeks to uphold this idea that the Bible presents to us two truths which we have to hold together. And we fall into error when we kind of emphasize one and neglect the other. The two truths which the Bible wants us to hold together are these. That is, that God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in the Bible in a way to reduce human responsibility. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in the Bible uh, or in the world in a way which reduces human responsibility. And, and secondly, human beings are responsible creatures. That is, we choose, we believe, we disobey, we respond. There's moral significance to our choices, but our responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God dependent on us and our actions. That is, God is sovereign and we are responsible. God plans and achieves his plans... And we make significant, meaningful, real uh, choices uh, based on our, our desires. That is, God's sovereignty and our responsibility don't cancel each other out. It was God's plan to harden Pharaoh's heart, absolutely. But Pharaoh wasn't an unwilling passenger in all of that. He did exactly what he wanted to do. That is, his desires lined up entirely with God's plan. He didn't want to let the people go, and so he didn't. And actually, that's the problem that the Bible tells us with humanity, with ourselves. The problem is that apart from God's grace in our lives, we don't want to turn to him. We, our desires are completely 180 degrees away from God's. We want to harden our hearts against his word. We want to harden our hearts against his authority and his grace in Jesus Christ. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That is, we were dead in sin. We were utterly powerless to escape from it. Just like a dead person lying in the grave doesn't raise themselves up. They don't dig themselves out. In Romans 6, the Bible describes us as slaves to sin. That is, we're trapped, we're chained, we're locked up in a way of life that we can't ever get out of. That's how lost we are. Our problem is not simply that we don't know the facts. Our problem is that even when we know the facts, unless God opens the eyes of our hearts to see, we don't want to receive the facts, the truth of God. We don't want to receive God or respond to him with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's why as Christians who have seen the grace of God, whose eyes have been opened, who have embraced Jesus Christ. That's why we always pray for people who don't know Jesus, don't we? What do we pray? We pray that God would open their hearts and that they would receive Jesus. Because instinctively we know that that's the only way that someone could turn to Christ. And if you're presently hardening your heart 
against God, then you should pray that same prayer, that God would open the eyes of your heart to enable you to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a supernatural work of God, which we need God to do so that we don't become like Pharaoh and harden our hearts against God's grace. And what if you do harden your heart? Can you blame God? Uh, I knew a lady uh, who'd been coming along to church for many years. And she said she'd heard the gospel over and over again and people had challenged her to believe the gospel. And she said, well, I'm not going to believe the gospel until God, until God changes me. Can she blame God? Can she wait for God? No. Because both truths are true. God is in control. God's making his plan and working out his plan. But we are 100% responsible for the decisions that we make. Turn to me and be saved, says Jesus. And if we don't, it's our fault. If you harden your heart and refuse to turn to God, it's not God's fault, but yours. It's your responsibility. And you cannot blame anyone but yourself. So Pharaoh hardened his heart, but that was also working out God's great plan and purpose in the world. But why? What was God's great plan and purpose? Why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, the answer to that comes in chapter 9, verse 13, uh, when God says to Pharaoh through Moses, he says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Well, this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God raised up Pharaoh, he hardened his heart. For what purpose? God says, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Throughout these chapters, God's glory had been proclaimed in numerous ways. We see that in the way that God's power outflanks the power of Pharaoh's magicians. So in the first two plagues, uh, Pharaoh's magicians are able to imitate somehow, in some way, some of the things that God does through Moses. But what the magicians can never do is they can never wind back what the plagues that God has sent. So when the Nile turns to blood, the magicians are able to do something a little bit similar with some of the water that's left over, but they can't, they can't turn it back. They can't turn the, the bloody water back into pure water. And when the frogs come on the land, when God sends the frogs, the magicians are able to make some frogs appear as well, but they're not able to, to actually make the frogs go away. Pharaoh has to call on Moses and Aaron to do that. And actually after the first two plagues, the magicians can't even keep up anymore. God's glory is displayed in his power over the creation and his power which outflanks and outstrips anyone else. But God not only shows that he's powerful in these chapters, he also shows that he's safe. In a number of the plagues, we're told how God specifically protected his own people. He distinguished between the Egyptians and the Israelites. So in the plague of flies, the Egyptians' houses were full of flies, but actually the houses of God's people were not. 
The same is true of the boils and the hail and the locusts and the darkness. The people of Egypt were afflicted, but not God's own people. But actually, in the plague of hail, it becomes clear that God's safety and protection is not just for his own people, but for anyone who's willing to listen. So God says in chapter 9, verse 18, Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that's ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. That is, God says to Pharaoh, give an order to your people so that they can bring their livestock in so that they won't be destroyed. God is giving the people of Egypt the possibility of being saved from this coming destruction. And then in verse 20 of chapter 9, we're told straight away, those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. With the hail plague, God gives the Egyptians an opportunity to escape. All they have to do, it's very simple, isn't it? All they have to do is to bring their livestock inside from out in the fields and they'll be spared. So simple. It's not complicated. They just had to believe God when he said that that's what he was going to do and that that's how they would be safe. But while Pharaoh and the others turn up their nose at that offer and and don't, don't heed the warning. There are a few. There are a few in Egypt who hear what God says and have enough fear of God and of his word that they listen. And their livestock and their people are saved. You see, God's purpose in these great and mighty acts is fundamentally not about the judgment of Egypt, but actually his aim is salvation. His aim is that people would turn to him and trust him and follow him. His aim is that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. That's a salvation goal, actually. And so we look at the plagues and we think it's judgment and destruction coming on Egypt. And yes, in a way that that's true, but actually the ultimate purpose is that people might hear the gospel, that people might hear who, who God is and join themselves to what God is doing in and through his people. God says to Pharaoh, I could have wiped you out by now, but I haven't. I've been merciful. Because his aim is that people would come to know him as the one true God in whom mercy could be found. God was doing something through his people Israel. What he promised, that is, that through a descendant of Abraham, through one of their people, that God would fix the world, that God would put the world right. And whoever joined themselves to what God was doing through that people and through that nation and through those promises, those people would be safe. And what was true of God's great work of rescue in Egypt is actually true of God's greatest work. It's still true of God's greatest work in Jesus' death and resurrection. That is, whoever joins themselves to the Jesus who was promised to come through Abraham, whoever joins themselves to Jesus who's died and risen again, 
whoever joins themselves to Jesus will be safe. Safe from the coming judgment. Just as the Egyptians and the Israelites would be safe if they trusted God and trusted God's word. God's ultimate purpose is not judgment, but mercy. If only we receive it in Jesus Christ. Although at first it might seem that what God is doing in these chapters is to punish Egypt, we need to realize that his purpose here is good, that we might turn from our rebellion against God and be saved. It's important that we still understand, of course, that there is wrath. God's purpose is not only mercy, there is wrath, there is a judgment to come, there is a hell. Jesus warned about hell more than anyone else. There is an eternity separated from the love of God and experiencing the justice and the righteous judgment of God. But there's also a chance for us to escape that. There's also an offer of mercy to whoever receives it. Pharaoh and his his officials heard about that mercy and saw that mercy. They saw it time and time again and yet their hearts were hardened against God. They did that willingly. And no matter how many chances God gave them, they kept hardening their hearts. There were glimmers of hope, but their stupidity and their selfishness kept them from the mercy of God. Don't be like those people. Don't keep giving up the opportunities that God gives to you to receive his mercy, but turn to him. Receive his mercy in Jesus Christ. Receive that mercy and escape the judgment that's to come. Receive in Jesus the forgiveness of sin and life in the world to come. Don't be like Pharaoh and harden your heart, but pray that God would open the eyes of your heart to receive him, to love him and to know Christ. Let's pray that now. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we want to acknowledge that we find your judgment and the devastation brought in Egypt difficult. But Lord, we also know that it's just a portent, it's a small glimpse of what is to come for those who will not turn to you, who persist in rejecting you. And Lord, we thank you that even amid judgment and uh, and plagues, we see that your purpose was good, that your name might be proclaimed in all the earth, that who you are might be known so that people could hear of you and turn to you and be saved. And Lord, we thank you that we have heard of your great salvation in Egypt, but most especially in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would enable each one of us to receive that with joy Uh, and receive Jesus and entrust our lives to him. 
Lord, we pray that none of us would harden our hearts. Lord, if there are people here this morning who are going down that track, who are hardening themselves every day against your word and against you, Lord, we ask that you would soften their hearts, do a great work of grace. Lord, we pray that none of us would perish, but that all of us would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And Lord, we pray that not only for us, but for our town and for our state and for our country and for our world, that you would pour out your spirit and that you would soften hard hearts, that people might turn to you and be saved. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.